from the WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for February the 16th, 2020. This is our look at the world of politics and policy as we go from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, as Mama says, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, so time to take a break, grab a beverage, and we'll get you prepared for the rest of the week. Well, we've got a full show ahead of us tonight until 7 o'clock, and helping us along is the great Roger Badish. Well, thank you very much, sir. A pleasure, as always, to be with you on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. A and beautiful you know Sunday, too. A, a beautiful Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. and, and better here than on the streets downtown. Um, <laughs> yes. These last three days, mm-hmm. uh, from Friday evening, it's been unbelievable, the amount of traffic. And, I mean, obviously, I know the, the NBA All-Star Game is, is going mm-hmm. on, and mm-hmm. that's brought in a lot of people, a right. lot of tourism. Mm-hmm. And we'll take their money. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> and the auto show is the, still going yes. on through tomorrow. And with the weather warming up, a lot of people wanted to get out. They, they got that little you know, cabin fever over those uh, couple of days where it was really cold. And uh, It so. was cold, but at least we didn't get the snowmageddon. Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yes, thank you. Well, I mean... <laughs> I, You're right. Yes, uh, I'd rather have the cold than the snow. Yes, uh, and, and, and you know you've got people billing you know snowstorm coming, oh. one to three inches, and it's like that's not yeah. a storm. No, that's no. you know. Trust me, I know storms. Well, don't we both? <laughs> yes. Um, you know that that means maybe we just shuffle a little bit mm-hmm. as we shovel. Yeah, but that ain't a storm. No, I mean one to three inches. Mm-mm. No. But, uh, and the cold, it, yeah, it was bad maybe Thursday. The, f- the first? For the first day. Yeah, right, right. But, but the second day, actually, uh, if you're able to get out of the wind, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. bad at all. Yeah. It was it, nice. It was, it was decent. Had a good time. Well, I mean, that's been one of the hardest things to adapt to is now, you know, both with the Chicago Tribune mm-hmm. having moved out of Tribune Tower, with WGN having moved out of Tribune Tower. Mm-hmm. In our new location, while it's great, beautiful views, you can't ask. No, it's the, just beautiful, yeah. But the wind tunnels. Mm-hmm. That is a whole mm-hmm. new element that I had never dealt with. Before. Well, at the Tribune, we were kind of on the lower, lower level. We were right. lower Wacker Drive when we would come in, park, and go in. So we really didn't catch the wind going down Michigan Avenue unless we ventured across the street to one of the restaurants or the coffee shop. But here, there is no lower level to walk around in. You have to go up on street level, and we've got all these tall structures here a lot closer to the lake than the Trib was. And, yeah, you're right. Those winds are whipping. And they bend. I mean, it's, yeah. not, like, it's not like, you know, in a weather forecast where you could say the wind is coming off the lake. Mm-hmm. You can be walking, and it's coming from the north, mm-hmm. or it's coming from the south. Yeah, it finds you. It, and, yeah, <laughs> maybe it's that little loser tag we've got on our foreheads. No, uh, it's just the Chicago Hawk. 
coming after yeah, you. Yeah, but but that that's just been the you know one of the big adjustments of of not being in the tower anymore. Yeah, yeah. that's all right. We're hardy stock, us Chicagoans, and uh, we'll deal with it, I guess. Well, we'll deal with that. I mean, it's 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 uh, uh, it's it's part of why we love Chicago. Yes. Definitely. Because when it's nice, we really love Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) That's so important. Yeah. That's so important. We got a busy week past and a busy week forward. I'm surprised you don't have a mile-high stack of stuff in front of you. Well, you know what? There is, but uh, every February, I like to do a little... testimonial to black history month oh, and nice. that's what we're dedicating the show to today so okay. uh going to uh, talk to uh melissa conyers irvin the chicago city treasurer about financial literacy todd mayfield the son of music icon curtis curtis mayfield, mayfield yeah martha joe black daughter of the late mlb pitcher joe black and bria anderson wife of tim anderson from the white Sox. So beautiful that's all coming up ahead you're listening to the sunday spin on wgn this is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I am Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and time to kick off our spin through the last week in national politics. And yes, the Nevada caucuses are ahead, but we had the New Hampshire primary last week. So we're starting to see two clear leaders are emerging after the first two state contests. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. But is this how it's going to end up? Joe Biden, uh, with a disappointing finish, he says, uh, just watch me. Uh, But a lot of people are watching, including former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who is basically flooding the zone uh, with TV ads. Bloomberg not really participating in these early caucuses, looking ahead to March 3rd in the Super Tuesday states. After Super Tuesday, which is two weeks before Illinois goes to the polls, after Super Tuesday, more than half of the delegates to the Democratic National Convention will be picked. So there is still a long playing field ahead, but... Uh, on uh, the night of the New Hampshire primary, Bernie Sanders credited his volunteer army of workers for his victory in New Hampshire. Let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. And let me thank the thousands of volunteers in New Hampshire. Thank you. Who knocked on doors in the rain and the snow and the cold. The reason that we won tonight in New Hampshire, we won last week, in Iowa it's because of the hard work of so many volunteers and let me say tonight that this victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. 
That's Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders after winning the New Hampshire primary. Now, uh, Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, had another strong showing along with his finish in Iowa. Of course, those results in Iowa still unofficial. Uh, but the former South Bend mayor thanked his fellow candidates. And he kind of made an interesting reference to Sanders. Here's Pete Buttigieg. I admired Senator Sanders when I was a high school student. I respect him greatly to this day, and I congratulate him on his strong showing tonight. And I want to congratulate Senator Klobuchar, Senator Warren, Vice President Biden, and all of our Democratic candidates and supporters. And I know that we all share the spirit that we heard from some of our volunteers at a poll site earlier today who welcomed a competing candidate with chance of vote blue no matter who. We are on the same team. That's former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Now, there had been talk back in Iowa that there was a surge behind Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar's candidacy for president. It didn't happen in Iowa, but frankly, it did happen in New Hampshire. Klobuchar scored a surprising third-place finish. She's raising a bunch of money. This is uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar after the New Hampshire results. Thank you, New Hampshire. We love you, New Hampshire. Hello, America. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. My heart, my heart is full tonight. My heart is full tonight. While there are still ballots left to count, we have beaten the odds every step of the way. We have done it on the merits, we have done it with ideas, and we have done it with hard work. Because we are resilient and strong as the people of this great nation. That's Amy Klobuchar on her third place finish in New Hampshire. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, well, she finished fourth. And... She says the road to the White House is long and twisting, but there's some question about what has happened to her campaign. Once a leading campaign in Iowa, now looking a bit dormant, uh, she says and acknowledges it's needing to inject some energy into her campaign to try to launch her back to the top spot. Here is Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Sanders and Mayor Buttigieg had strong nights. And I also want to congratulate my friend and colleague, Amy Klobuchar, for showing just how wrong the pundits can be when they count a woman out. But since we are here tonight among family and friends, I also want us to be honest with ourselves as Democrats. We might be headed for another one of those long primary fights that lasts for months. We're two states in with 55 states and territories to go. We still have 98% of our delegates for our nomination up for grabs. And Americans in every part of the country 
are going to make their voices heard. That's right. The question for us Democrats is whether it will be a long, bitter rehash of the same old divides in our party or whether we can find another way. That's uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, The question is, what is that other way? Obviously, the campaigns uh, divided into various factions along ideological lines of the more progressive candidates, that's Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, the uh, lesser but still uh, moderate progressive candidates, I should say, and that's where you're talking about Buttigieg, as well as former Vice President Joe Biden. Biden suffered a fifth-place finish in New Hampshire. He didn't even wait for the count in New Hampshire, quite frankly. He went right out to South Carolina, which he views as kind of a political firewall because of his previously demonstrated support from African-American voters there. But there are questions on whether Biden can hang on until South Carolina votes. And there's also questions about whether his support among African-Americans is eroding in the Palmetto State. Here is former Vice President Joe Biden. Not half the nation, not a quarter of the nation, not 10 percent, two, two. Now I come from, that's the opening bell, not the closing bell. And uh, the fight to end Donald Trump's presidency is just beginning, just beginning. Thank you. It is important that Iowa and Nevada have spoken, but look, we need to hear from Nevada and South Carolina and Super Tuesday states and beyond. And look, we're moving in an especially important phase because up till now, we haven't heard from the most committed constituency of the Democratic Party, the African-American community. So once again, we find Joe Biden resting his hopes on the African-American community. Now, as for the president, I remember what a week, what a couple of weeks we've been through. As for the president, after his acquittal by the Senate, primarily Senate Republicans, in his impeachment trial, some of those Senate Republicans said they thought Trump would learn a lesson and perhaps curb some of his behavior. But he decided to start cleaning house in the National Security Council, including firing Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman from the National Security Council. Vindman testified under subpoena uh, before uh, the House impeachment proceedings. Then he took to Twitter to attack the Department of Justice's proposed sentence for Trump ally Roger Stone. The sentence was subsequently, uh, the recommendation for the sentence was subsequently changed. So Trump was asked, what did he learn from impeachment? What lesson did you learn from impeachment? Uh, That the Democrats are crooked. They've got a lot of crooked things going. That they're vicious. uh, That uh, they shouldn't have brought impeachment. And that my poll numbers are 10 points higher because of fake news like NBC, which reports the news very inaccurately, probably more inaccurately than CNN, if that's possible. Uh, MSDNC. And your MS, uh, and, and if you take a look at NBC, now I think they're among the most dishonest reporters of the news. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it. So that is President Donald Trump, where uh, basically asked about what lessons learned. It was just another chance for him to try to attack the news media. 
Up ahead on this edition of the Sunday Spin, after 5.30, we'll speak to Chicago City Treasurer Melissa Conyers-Irvin. She's promoting some town hall events that she's dubbed Dollars and Cents, and it deals with uh, trying to offer lessons in financial literacy. That's up ahead. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone is Chicago City Treasurer, uh, Melissa Conyers-Irvin. Madam Treasurer, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Rick. Happy NBA weekend. (laughs) (laughs) You throwing a party? Oh, no, no, I'm not throwing a party. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm losing my voice a little bit. You know, I'm the mother of a three-year-old, so when she gets sick, sometimes the germs spread a little bit in the home. So there you go. (laughs) Especially when it's cold and everybody's all cooped up together. There you go. There you go. But I'm feeling great, feeling great, excited about what's to come. Well, great. And I wanted to have you on because uh, you have been doing a a series of, uh, I guess, seminars i don't know how you want to call them town hall town- i would call them town hall okay. mm-hmm. um but i i mean my fundamental takeaway with this and and there's two more coming up but uh it's it's about the need for financial literacy for people to understand financial literacy is that is that a fair takeaway of this that is in addition to and it's multiples in addition to residents walking away knowing about the office of the city treasurer knowing what's in their coffer because a lot of times that I what I have found in these town halls that we've already had two one the first was in council chambers downtown in the loop the second we had on the west side of Chicago and as you mentioned we have two more coming up in February um, next Saturday at Inglewood STEM High School out south, and then Saturday, February 29th at Albany Park Branch Library up north. What we have learned from the two already that we've had is that residents truly did not know that they had a personal banker. That's what I call myself. I'm the personal banker for the residents because I'm actually intentional each and every day about banking their money. I manage it and I invest it. Do you know, Rick, how shocked people are by that? They are shocked that they actually have someone that is their banker. Well, I think one of the things is, is because, uh, you know, let's face it, in in our multiple layers of government, people assume, well, somebody with the title of treasurer does something with money. But But we don't know what they do. And as you know, this was the first contested citywide you know, race that we have for treasurer. And so because of that, obviously more transparency, more awareness. And so which brings accountability, which is why I favor, you know, elected officials having to be accountable to the residents. Because now, Rick, it's making me go out to try to talk to people, let them know what we're doing. It's about transparency. And residents are walking away with so much information. Transparency, accountability. We're letting residents know, first First of all, you have a portfolio that I manage on a daily basis. And guess what? Your portfolio makes money. We're going to talk about that. And then on top of that, we're going to talk about savings. We're going to talk about financial capabilities. But we're also, Rick, which I'm excited about, we're going to bring key economic stakeholders to the table, banks, as well as small business lenders, 
And so these town halls that, that we're having for the month of February is for all ages. It's for residents, it's for seniors, it's for the working parents, and it's also for small business owners or those that desire to be. I want to ask you about, you know, the portfolio and, and the job of investing uh, the city's money. And, you know, I've seen some warnings from Wall Street that, uh, and, and it, it deals more with expected return on investment by pension funds, but but I think it's, in general, is kind of a warning of to lower uh, those earnings expectations that we, we the, the the ride that we've been having may not may not be lasting too much longer and so i i appreciate that and i'll be certain to bring you in to help me for the town halls the next year rick because for this town hall that we're having now it's talking about some of the earnings that we had in 2019 which i'm not going to say the number i want residents to come out and learn about it but it's a very high number millions and millions of dollars that we were able to earn interest on based upon taxpayers dollars now what we're expecting in 2020 may not be the same as what we received in 2019. Very valid point that you make. Because of what we invest also depends on the market. But do people understand the market? Um, you know what? They may they may or may not, but they don't necessarily have to. All people, I, I think taxpayers want to make certain that, number one, we don't lose a dime. Taxpayers' dollars have to be protected because, as you know, Rick, taxpayers feel that they are paying too much as is. And we want to make certain that in our office of the city treasurer that I am protecting taxpayers' dollars. And, and as a matter of fact, my primary responsibility is to manage and protect taxpayers' dollars and so i'm intentional that what we're investing in that we're making certain that we're protecting but also making money there's a trick to that rick there's a well, trick to that i mean and there is a lot riding on it because you know ultimately the better returns that the city is able to make through the investments that you manage uh, affect uh, the, the the tax revenue and potential property taxes and that's why the treasurer's office is so important where people had not realized it before. Because at the end of the day, why is the treasurer's office important to you as a resident? Because the more money I make for you, the less money that the city has to go in your pocket for. Now, also at these town halls, you've been having uh, representatives of uh, some of the banks, uh, some of the larger banks, uh, talk about uh, yes. small business loans. And, and I mean, everybody, you know, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but it kind of stops when it comes to capital. That's right. We know that our residents, um, two, two primary concerns that they have, one is access to capital, and the other is access to financing. And we know that there is a lot of residents that have great ideas, that have great proposals, and unfortunately, they just don't have that access. And so what I'm excited about, because at the end of the day, Rick, I am the one that's interacting with these institutions on a daily basis. And so because I'm interacting with them on a daily basis, I'm advocating on behalf of the residents. So I am going to bring these institutions to the residents. I'm coming to each community, and I'm bringing these institutions with me because we need to hear from these institutions that we are doing business with on a daily basis. We need to hear from these institutions their commitment to us. Excuse me, I have a daughter in the background coughing. Rick, quite all right. But isn't there isn't there a way to isn't there a way to leverage the city investments to 
you know, encourage those financial institutions to open up for more capital availability? We've already started. So um, I don't know if you heard, Rick, about our broker-dealer scorecard, our diversity and inclusion scorecard. And what that is is that for the first time ever in the treasurer's office, we are rating businesses on their diversity, inclusion, and corporate social responsibility to determine whether we will be doing business with them. And here's why this is important. Well, I'll tell you what, so, Madam, Madam Treasurer, we're gonna yes. just gonna have to take a quick break here, but I want to talk more Certainly. about the scorecard. You're listening to the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson. This is WGN. Welcome back to the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me on the phone is Melissa Conyers-Irvin. She is the city treasurer for the great city of Chicago. We're talking about these dollars and cents town halls that uh, she has coming up ahead. One Saturday, February 22nd uh, at Inglewood STEM High School at 10 a.m. Another the following Saturday, February 29th, 10 a.m. at the uh, Albany Park Library. and we, before the break, we were talking about uh, kind of this financial scorecard that you are using to evaluate uh, how financial institutions that the city deals with in its investments, um, basically how they treat city residents. Madam Treasurer. Yes, Rick. The, sorry, I'm here. At the end of the day, we want to make certain that organizations that we are doing business with, organizations that are making money off of us, are invested in us. At the end of the day, we just want to make certain that organizations that we do business with not only are invested in us, but look like us, reflects the citizens of Chicago. And then we want to learn about their giving back, giving back to Chicago, because what we don't want is for organizations to take taxpayers' dollars and leave. We want them to invest back in our communities, which is why the Treasurer's Office, and I'm so glad, you know, since I took office in May of 2019, that I've been able to institute the first of its kind, this diversity scorecard, where we're rating organizations on diversity and inclusion. And when we talk about diversity, we're not just speaking of diversity of employees. We're talking about diversity of executives, senior management. We want to rate them on that as well. And then the corporate resource, corporate social responsibility is the giving back. And more of this we're going to discuss at our dollars and cents town halls that are coming up out south on February 22nd and also up north on February 29th so residents can come and learn all about what we're doing so we're, with their money. We're going to learn kind of the results of these scorecards that you're doing. That's right. And and actually, Rick, some of the organizations that we were doing business with before, we're no longer doing business with them this time. Now, certainly, we hope that this will be motivation. I'm, we hope that this will be motivation for them to have better ratings and be able to come back and do business with us. This is encouraging for them. I also am curious, too, um, you, you have what's known as the social impact plan. And, and could you could you explain what that actually is? Oh yes. At the end of the day, all residents of Chicago should be financially capable. We know that the city of Chicago, our residents, lack access access to capital, access to financing. 
Well, my goal is going to be with our 2020 social impact plan, we're going to be rolling out and that'll, more information at the town halls that are February 22nd and February 29th, but we're going to be rolling out our plan as the city treasurer's office as to how we want to capitalize all of Chicago, all 77 neighborhoods. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty significant goal. I know it is, but let me tell you how we're going to start. I, I feel like I'm giving you all the little nuggets, Rick. Oh, um, no. Ahead of time. Well, yeah, but it, it, it'll be more to come. You're, you're <laughs> offering the tease, okay? This is the reason yeah, to go yeah, out yeah. there. <laughs> yes, we're actually going to start a program as soon as spring break, and that will be a program for our youth. Because for me, I believe that it should start from kindergarten to our seniors with the financial capabilities. So there'll be more that we're going to be talking about in the coming months about how we're going to start with our youth during spring break. You know, spring break um, is during the month of April, which is our um, annual um, Smart Money Week. So we just want to make certain that we're talking about that and getting youth involved as well. You know, we talk about uh, down in Springfield, we talk about the, you know, people putting mandates on uh, education, that certain things are required to be taught, those kinds of things. And I have to wonder, you know, we, we just actually just a couple of years ago required that civics actually be taught in schools. That was something not ever done before. Uh, what about financial literacy as a, as a requirement to be taught in the schools? Statistics show that if children start saving a very small amount at a young age, a small amount, that they are seven times more likely to not only attend college but to graduate from college. Now, we also know that, you know, it's it's a struggle. CPS does not necessarily have the funding to do everything that may be needed, which is why at the city treasurer's office I'm going to make it my business to try to just do my part to help. No, I may not have all the solutions. No, I may not be able to solve all the problems. But I am certainly going to try to help because our children need to start saving and learning at an early age. Well, and 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 learning how, quite frankly, how the world works. How, That's right. How, how our economic system works here in the United States. That's right. And and that's right. You know what is return on investment? What does that mean? And uh, I mean, there's there's so much about the fact of government that is obviously dependent on cash flow, cash resources. We have the the governor proposing his next state budget coming up on Wednesday. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, there are reasons why certain policies get enacted because of the financial state that the governments are in. And I just think that that's something that would be something that students should learn as part of, as perhaps even as part of civics, is, is how financial uh, financial knowledge affects how governments operate. It does. And at the end of the day, we need all residents. It certainly starts with our children. And once, you know, I even believe that adults can learn from their children. Who knows, maybe what we're teaching the children, they can take home to their parents. But as you mentioned, we know that starting young is the best. 
we want to make certain that we don't neglect our children in this process. So I'm not just focused on residents. You know, I'm, when I say residents, I mean voting age. We got to make certain that we start young with our children and make them financially capable even at a young age. Now, for people to uh, register to uh, attend these two uh, uh, dollars and cents town halls, uh, where can they get more information on that? So they can go to eventbrite.com, and they can do a search for my name, Melissa Cunyers Heisen Irvin, and that's through eventbrite.com. Or the easy way is also through Facebook as Shy Treasurer. So we're on Facebook. Um, we're also on eventbrite.com. Again, Melissa Cunyers Irvin. Or Facebook is at Shy Treasurer. And we encourage people to sign up. Now, if they don't sign up, certainly, Rick, they're more than welcome to still attend. But I hope that people will still follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, because there's always things that we're doing in the treasurer's office. We want to help residents, and we want residents to feel like their money is working for them. And uh, they can also call uh, 312-742-1439. Uh, That's for, right. For, for the less social media adept out there. Um, Good point. <laughs> Treasurer, I also wanted to have you on as well. At the, I'm kind of devoting the show as I try to do every February to Black History Month. And uh, you are the first West Side resident elected to a citywide office. And Wow, you're smart, Rick. You know all of this. Uh, Go ahead. It's part of my job. Part of my job. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, what... How important do you view the empowerment of your election as far as the black community? My community feels like there's hope. We need to see hope. Sometimes we hear about the possibility, but we need to see it. And when our residents feel as if that they have helped to elect the first citywide elected official from the west side of Chicago, and not only someone from the west side of Chicago, but someone who had the experience, someone who had the credentials to qualify to be treasurer, because they they feel empowered. They feel like something good can come from the west side, because so many times we have found that not only as being a black person, a black woman, as that can be considered a double negative, but if you're a black woman from the west side of Chicago, that can be considered a triple negative. And so for our residents to see that there can be an educated woman, even a young lady born of a raised by a single mother who was the first in her family to go to college, go on to get her MBA, honorary doctorate, that she could come from the West Side and represent our community. So I am so excited, and, and I appreciate, Brick, that you just mentioned that during Black History Month because I can't tell you how many people have already told me that they've spoken about me even, like, in their church service for Black History Month, and I was shocked, to be honest with you. I'm like, you're talking about me, the treasurer of Chicago? But for them, it was important because it provided hope, and this is hope that we want to instill in our children. And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, more and more elected leaders are coming out of the West Side. That's right, because we know that there is some good that can come from the West Side. You know, sometimes we all just don't start on the same playing field at the end of the day. But 
We know that we all get here in different ways, but when you make it to that point, we have to reach back and help others. And I believe that is so important, which is why I love being city treasurer of Chicago, because I'm able to leverage taxpayers' dollars. I want it to work for them. Taxpayers, so many instances, they see money going out but never see it being returned. I'm going to have to hold you. I'm going to have to hold you right there, city treasurer Melissa Conyers Irvin. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Rick. I enjoyed it, and continue and have a good evening. And let's see who wins today. Very well. You're listening to WGN. Up ahead on your Sunday spin, we're going to speak to a good new friend of mine, Todd Mayfield. Todd is the second oldest son of music icon Curtis Mayfield, and he's the author of a book about his father called Traveling Soul. Um, I've thought, uh, given uh, this kind of... uh, Commemoration of Black History Month. Todd now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday evening. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin, the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio, joined by Todd Mayfield, uh, son of music icon, legend, there aren't enough words, Curtis Mayfield. And... Uh, who's written a book called uh, The Life of Curtis Mayfield, Traveling Soul. And I have to tell you, uh, Todd, I I ate this book up. Uh, um, and it was so great meeting you. And uh, I just don't think Chicago has paid enough homage to your father and, and what, what he did. I think, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, his whole career, that's kind of what people say i mean he was um you know always understated as a an individual and you know he wasn't uh part of motown or anything like that but he did his own thing which is even more amazing um so yeah i mean that you hear that a lot that that he never really got his just due um you know, luckily with the Academy Award, you know, with the Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, he well, he's got his some, national yeah. acclaim. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you tell stories out of your book, and I'm sure you've told stories, I, I tell stories to people, and they're like, well, "I didn't know that." Yeah, and it's all you know from the, the, the Chicago kind of based type stories, and they're like, you mean that Curtis Mayfield? And it's like, yeah, that Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, he was like an institution, you know, on on his own almost, you know, the things that he did, the, the number of songs that he produced, and, you know, the artists that he worked with. Um, he, you know, he created that Chicago sound, you know, he's one of the pe- people who did that. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, he was so prolific. It was it, it was kind of amazing. I mean, very rare. It's very rare that someone has the longevity and in, in, in the um, you know the success that he had. Well, we'll talk about his upbringing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was difficult childhood, but he was also, I think, it's fair to say, a child prodigy. He was. He was, and um, it started in my great grandmother's church, uh, the Reverend A. B. Mayfield, and she uh, had a. A, a church called the Traveling Soul Spiritualist Church, and that's I hence, kind of figured hence, that's where the title, title from the book, yes. right? And so, you know, that's where he first got his start in terms of singing and and figuring out that he should own, you know, as much of himself as possible. Because my great grandmother, 
was you know had this church and was her own boss and you know was able to do well and actually had food and and, and residence you know and and right. things like that so um you know his upbringing was so rough and so poor um that those were things that he gravitated to like the success that she had i think that's that was a huge part of his life well and and also singing as a youth and yes. becoming involved in the the church gospel and the fact that that this was an, an acclaimed music organization that gave him a kind of taste of other sounds of other of other voices if you will in, in kind of the, that gospel kind of music trail yeah and that's you know that's where he met Jerry Butler, and that's where um, Jerry um, basically convinced him to leave his. You know, Jerry was a couple of years older than my dad, so he was able to convince my father to leave his little boy group and get you know with the big boys, you know, the big teenagers uh, in Seward Park and and um, and join the Impressions, and that so that's kind of where that whole thing came from. It, but it, it definitely came from the church. So I mean, he he moved around a lot in the city. Yeah, and and one of the interesting stories in the book is uh, moving to Cabrini Green. Right, that was a, a godsend. He, and you know what people think of Cabrini Green, and mm-hmm. to to view it in those eyes of what you know, brand new. What I mean, that was a life changer. It was brand new um, bathroom, internal plumbing. You know, you didn't have to go down the hall and, and share the bathroom with everybody on the floor. It was it was amazing. It was it was one of the best things that that happened to them. At that and of time. course, people think of Cabrini Green from latter years, but then it wasn't gangs. It was doo wop groups. Yeah, I was I was Park. I was just fascinated by that. That was mm-hmm. the turf. Yeah. Was you're on somebody's turf if you were on a different doo wop group. You go to Sewer Park and, and see how many people you get a room, you know, and you do your thing in there and see how many people are hanging outside your, your door as opposed to the, the next group. And that's how you, you know, you started getting your popularity and your, your, your fan base. And everybody looking for the right echoes, uh, the, the rhythm and the, and the right Absolutely. acoustics. And, and they become celebrities within yeah. within cabrini green yeah and so there is life uh, a, a new life that that exists out of this yeah i mean i and i think um at that time period in chicago you know whether it was in cabrini green or whether it's down you know in bronzeville or you know that's you know there were there were guys on the corner singing doo-wop you know they're competing that's what they and that's that, that's what they competed on back then and, and and that's how they you know a lot of um talent came to to you know to um have success out of chicago we're speaking with todd mayfield he's the son of uh, music icon and legend curtis mayfield about his book traveling soul and we're going to talk more about what his influence was in the struggle for civil rights that's up ahead you're listening to the sunday spin this is the sunday spin on 720 wgn once again here's rick pearson of the chicago tribune welcome back to your sunday spin i'm rick pearson of the chicago tribune we're in the WGN Skyline Studios. I'm here with Todd Mayfield, uh, the author of Traveling Soul, The Life of Curtis Mayfield, His Father. Uh, I try to do this special Black History Month show every February. Um, and as I said, you know, reading this book and, and um, 
never having really appreciated what he meant to Chicago and that the nation probably appreciated him more than, than the city did. But I, I want to talk to you about uh, his role in, in the civil rights movement. And I found it very interesting that 1968, uh, the year that Dr. King was assassinated, that RFK was assassinated, right. that's also the year he's becoming a record executive. Right. And, and moving into the business world beyond the litany of music and singing and traveling, that he's now becoming a record producer. Right. Well, he was already, already a producer. Well, but um, but he, he his, own, his label. own label. Right. Um, he started his own publishing company, which was huge back uh, in 1961, um, to own his, you know the songs that he was writing. But he was on ABC Paramount. Right. Um and at that time, they had a lot of success with them. And but he, you know, and they were offered a, a really lucrative deal to stay with ABC Paramount. But he decided that he wanted to start his own label. He was a control figure. He was. I mean that that, and you write about that in, mm -hmm. in the book. But you have these turbulent times of of 1968, and it's about message music. And and that he very confident, very self confident, uh, had no hesitation about wanting to make music that told a message, right? From indignities suffered by African Americans in the early '60s uh, to, quite frankly, you know, people think of your father, they think of Superfly, and I don't think they really realize that the soundtrack for Superfly was kind of antithetical to what the movie was because the movie was a black exploitation film right but the music was to not glorify these street figures in the way that the cinema did right well i mean one of his you know he had many like sayings that he would just like repeat over and over again and and one of those things was um you know he didn't feel like he wanted to preach to people but he wanted to give them food for thought um, and that was one of his things. So, like, that was like really where he was coming from. He wanted to put something. Yeah, on well, I realized there, and, I mean, there were a couple and, of interviews know. where people mm -hmm. were, were kind of tr almost egging him on to be, you know, why aren't you more outspoken? And it's like, I let the music tell the story. Right. And then let, let the person who consumes it think about what he was talking about. You know, think about the message that he's sending in contrast, even like you said, to Superfly, which is. You know, a lot of people thought was a, a cocaine commercial when it, you know, <laughs> right. And a lot of people criticized it, but so the music, like you mentioned, was a counter to that, and it would give, you know, it was it talked about these people. I mean, how many people think? How many how many people do you know think Freddie's? I mean, you know, but like of, of my generation, right. think Freddie's dead and know what that song's about, right? I mean, they're just they're bopping just along to it, it. but right. then you know, but then the lyrics, if you think about it, yep. Then this is like wow, he's really saying something about this character. You know, he was he was like, you know, giving life to the various characters in the film through through the music and and, and not you know, not in a glorifying way, right? Not one dimensional. It was like you know he 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 made you like you know someone someone who looked like they was a, a drug dealer, but he he made you kind of empathize with them and, and that the struggle and that they're what got to be, him to that to be, stage and that, and, and that they're trying to be something better than that. And, and that's what 
really what the what the film was about at the end. Well, and and you know, even in his message music, and he received some criticism for this, I think, but he was trying to find an optimistic outcome. Right. And as I said, he he got some criticism because he was not necessarily as harsh at the like the war in Vietnam was such a big thing. Uh Um, But he there was a message. And it's again, it's how you take how do you take that message? How do you deal with that message? Yeah. I mean, like I said, food for thought. He lets the people consume it and then figure out how they feel about it. You know, and, um, you know, everything's not just always simplistic. You know, things can be complex. You know, people who find themselves doing things that they feel they have to do, you know, not that they want to do. And I think that was part of it. If your father were still alive today, um, how do you think he would view this America right now? That's, you know, that's a tough question. I mean, he's always he was always just someone who, you know, consumes news and consume, you know, What's happening is very observant, um, and I think he probably, you know, one of the things he he always, always said was like, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I don't think that would be too far off to say that he would feel that way now. Sounds like an album, in yeah. a way, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, no, but I, I, I mean, these are very, you know, there was those very traumatic times in the '60s, absolutely. But we're in a different kind of uh, traumatic times here of, yeah. of division and as i said you know you listen to those harmonies and some of that music uh it's 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 a joining together i mean it's out of the gospel spirit of, of right. people joining together and uh one other story that i loved here was about his first guitar mm-hmm I mean, because, you know, obviously played a guitar like nobody else and, and didn't strum. He was he was flicking. Right. And about the, I think you wrote that the guitar was the great love of his life. Yeah. And that was really one of the toughest things about, uh, you know, his life after his accident that uh, he wasn't able to, you know, create and and be a partner with uh with his guitar and and the piano keyboards but mostly the guitar that's how he wrote self-taught mm-hmm. um which that's why i mean is about being a music uh prodigy is all self-taught yeah and uh, i mean he, he always knew what he wanted to do i get that sense in here is Absolutely. that he just found that place for him and he wanted to bring people with him. Yeah. I mean, another thing he would say, he'd say he found himself at a very young age, meaning that he knew that's what he wanted to do, like when he was a little kid. And that's what he did. And, you know, ninth grade dropout from Wells right. High School. Um, wanted to, wanted to drop out earlier. Wanted to drop out in yeah. sixth grade, basically. But couldn't probably. No, but, no. You know, and so that's just what it was. His only other job was selling uh, Dunhill cigars, door you know door to door downtown. That didn't work out very well or last very long. That's the only thing that he did other than music. I, going back to starting his own label. I mean, you know, when you think of Motown and Barry Gordy, you know that was a that's a pretty significant step to kind of challenge 
what was then the kind of a black music establishment. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you felt there was room. His, his real idol was was Sam Cooke. Mm-hmm. Sam Cooke was the, uh, you know, and, and obviously Barry Gordy too. But Barry Gordy wasn't a musician, right? So to speak. But um, so Sam Cooke was who he, you know, who he most wanted to be like. And 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 when he saw that he started his label, even though he wasn't on it as an artist himself, but um, that's you know, that's what I felt he emulated. Well, when I saw, you know, with the start of the start of his label, and mm-hmm. then he's basically doing all the work, oh. everything, including the music. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that had to be a tremendous toll. And it wasn't until I forget the gentleman that he hired; they hadn't even been collecting royalties on, yeah. on the music. A lot of that. I mean, he, yeah, he was just, he was a one man machine. I mean, he wrote, produced was an artist himself producing other folks and running a label so yeah it was it was a lot it's uh i mean it, to me it's just a fascinating story and and i don't know what to do about getting chicago to recognize you know he's revered uh in the civil rights movement in the music industry uh you know watching that uh, when he got the legends award Mm-hmm. And the performers range from you know Bonnie Raitt, uh, you know who Bruce you, uh, Bruce Springsteen, yeah Phil Collins, Aretha, and I have to admit on and on. I have to admit in reading the book, I didn't realize some of the songs that I listened to that were covered by others mm-hmm. were your dad's work. Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck. I, I mean, Gypsy Woman. Yeah, you know it. it uh, Tony Orlando and Dawn, of all you know, that's why he owned his publishing. Well, (laughs) that's right, that's right. But he also wanted to make sure that the family was taken care of when when that tragic accident happened. Absolutely. Um, And I I think that was one of his first words to you: "Were handle the finances." Um, it's. It's a remarkable life, and mm-hmm. and to think of a, an accident like that, and, and certainly, you know, he had he fallen off the scene a little bit during disco wasn't his thing, that right. kind of thing. But even as paralyzed by that accident, still recorded his own album. That's that says something. That's crazy. Todd Mayfield, uh, author of Traveling Soul, The Life of Curtis Mayfield. Thank you so much for joining me here today to talk about your father. And we're going to post a link to the book on on, uh, our website. Uh, Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Welcome back to the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And I'm joined here in the studio by my good friend, Martha Jo Black, author a daughter of uh, the late MLB pitcher Joe Black and the author of the book uh, Joe Black More Than a Dodger. Yes. And this is kind of our traditional February. Yes, this is my fifth time. I'm very excited. Thank you. And uh, joining us on the phone, a special guest, is Bree Anderson. who is the- Hi. Hey, Bree. How are you? Great. How are you? I, I, I bet the weather's a bit uh, nicer out there than it is back here in Chicago. 
It's amazing. The girls and I just got out of the pool. Oh, you had to do that, (laughs) didn't you? Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, Bree is the wife of uh, White Sox star shortstop, uh, Tim Anderson, and uh, they have a a charity, Anderson's League of Leaders. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I kind of wanted to go back to martha joe and mm-hmm. uh pre in the previous segment i had uh, todd mayfield on right. and what i was telling him off the air because i said i was going to talk to you about it on the air mm-hmm. is you learn so much about black history from the people who are living it in these books in your book Correct. in todd's book and especially for you know, a white kid like me who grew up in the <laughs> suburbs where, it, you know, uh, the civil rights struggle was maybe just talked about by a teacher. Right. You live this. It, to a certain degree. I somewhat grew up like you, though. I Under, mean, understood. Yeah, I'm in but, 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 but in his story of oh, what story. he went oh, yes, through. Yes, he did. Um, he um, relayed a lot of information to me during my growing up in Arizona saying that, oh, well, kids, you're very lucky and gave me some examples of what he had to go through. Um, so that's why even to this day, I'm very fortunate. Like, so we're going to vote, as you talk about a lot. Um, I know that a lot of people died and got hurt for me to be able to vote. So I definitely vote. And it really hurts my heart when younger people say, oh, it's, they're not going to change anything for me. And I was like, but no one's going to know anything that you want until you vote. Well, and that's why I talk about civic engagement being so necessary. Right. And, and, and uh, when you look again at, at the civil rights struggles of the past, and it, it really wasn't that long ago no, in this wasn't. nation's history. No. And have we grown by leaps and bounds? No. We've actually, in my personal opinion, we have gone backwards a great deal. That's and that's kind of why I asked Todd Mayfield that question about, you know, the, the divisions uh, were in this. I mean, certainly there were great divisions in the 60s. Oh, in the 50s, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, my dad told me about white and black um, drinking fountains, and you can't go to this restaurant and so on and so forth. But we have unfortunately gone, in my personal opinion, yes, I <clears throat> just turned 50 last year. Um, and I've lived Wow, here for a I while. didn't even have yes, to ask yes, that. Yes, I'm, I'm very honest about that. But I have seen, unfortunately, a lot of people go backwards. Um, it has nothing to do with race. It should be what's in somebody's heart. Um, your color has nothing to do with anything because if we all get cut, we all bleed red. And I mean that's 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 just fundamental. And right. I mean, Bree, I think of of you, your husband Tim, and I mean the the superstar that he is. And I'll I'll admit for full disclosure, yes, I'm a I'm a Cubs fan, but. But but I I, I I live in the South Loop, so I go to more Sox games. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, but but I mean, it, it's you look at baseball from the era of Martha Joe's father, where he's he's in a uh, living in a neighborhood without true segregation. Correct. And and there's baseball scouts that show up at the high school, and he, he's asking these scouts, why aren't you scouting me? And they said, well, because you're colored. You can't play baseball. Um, I mean, that, that just kind of breaks your heart right there. Yeah. And, you know, and then we move forward to, 
you know, you and Tim and uh, the League of Leaders Charity, which is, you know, a payback. It's it's a it's a give back to uh, you know help kids who you know are not going to have necessarily totally. the best outcomes. So tell, tell me about tell me what the the League of Leaders Charity is. Yeah, so um, our charity was uh, founded in 2017. In May of 2017, uh, Tim lost his best friend, Brandon, um, who's also the godfather to our oldest daughter, Peyton. Um, So, you know, Brandon was a lot like Tim. Uh, They, you know, a great guy. Um, He had a daughter as well, a fiancé. Um, so when he passed away, I think it just really hit home, you know, it could have been my husband or, you know, my brother or anyone. Um, so we started our charity, Brandon, Tim's friend was, uh, murdered, um, to gun violence. Um, so we immediately knew what cause we wanted to tackle, uh, especially with us being on the South side of Chicago, um, and the gun violence rate being so extremely high. Um, it just felt like a good fit, um, and it has been. Um, yeah. Well, and and one of the things in talking to people about uh, the League of Leaders is that uh, you both devote uh, you, you both devote real time to this. This isn't like dropping okay. in, saying hi to some kids, and leaving. It's like, not at all. It's very. Yeah, I think when Tim uh, first decided he wanted to start a charity um, organization, that was one of the biggest things that um, he wanted to do. He wanted to be relatable. He wanted to be a face. He wanted to be, um, you know, the role model for specifically these kids that are on the south side of Chicago who have been affected by violence in some kind of way, um, right? Whether they've seen it firsthand, whether they've experienced it, whether they're the offender. Um, you know, when you think of the South Side of Chicago and the White Sox, to be honest, you don't really, or baseball in general, you just don't think about African-American role models. You don't think about African-American players. Um, you know, and Tim's goal, specifically with the charity, is to give those, you know, those kids who are on the south side of Chicago or, you know, the African-American community or the, you know, minority community in general, just to give them, um, you know, just that knowledge that there is an alternate route, you know, to be a leader. There is, you know, a different lane that you can step into. It doesn't have to be what you may see every day. Breed, is it hard to reach some of these kids? Not at all. Um, so you would think, right? Because they're t- right. we work with a lot of teenagers, and you know how teenagers are. But Tim is so relatable. So he, you know, he listens to the same music that they listen to. Heck, he probably knows <laughs> some of the artists that they're listening to, right? Sure. Or you know, his family, like his brothers, his father. You know, his he's. He's, he comes from that background. So it's so authentic when they get him in the room and they just, you know, they don't talk about, 
you know, the tragedies. Um, they talk about real life things, cars, music, you know, what's what's going on? Like what's the the, the real things that are going exactly. on around them? So that it makes it easier for those kids to kind of open up and share their experiences. We're speaking with Bree Anderson, the wife of White Sox star shortstop Tim Anderson, and Martha Joe Black, author and daughter of pitcher Joe Black. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the WGN Skyline studio by Martha Joe Black, my good friend, uh, daughter of uh, the 1952 National League Rookie of the Year, Joe Black. Yeah. First african-american pitcher to win a world series game in the major leagues yes. and on the phone is brie anderson who is uh, out in spring training uh, and just out of the pool with the kids <laughs> in, arizona. Uh, in arizona the wife of uh, white Sox shortstop tim anderson and we're uh, this is uh, as i've said earlier this is kind of my homage to black history month that i like to try to do here and Bree touched on something, and, and I think, Martha Joe, we've talked about this before, about um, black role models and mm-hmm. how part of the reason you wrote the book about your father was mm-hmm. you kind of felt that black males as fathers didn't... They, were, were, they were getting stereotyped. Yes, I believe they were. Um I just, excuse me, I know for myself, since my um, parents, like a lot of, unfortunately, young people, your parents get divorced, and my father won sole custody of me in the mid-70s, which was rare. I grew up in Arizona, where Brian and Tim are right now in Arizona, um, which at the time was 1% black. And um, when my father won custody, he was very surprised, but he was very grateful, because his biggest thing during the whole entire divorce proceedings was my daughter needs more than a check. She needs love, time, and loyalty, and that is why he won custody of me. And I think there are a lot of brown fathers out there from African-American to Hispanic that do a lot of things, and they help a lot of children, and we don't hear about them. Well, and and Brie, coming back to you, I mean, that's why I'm very interested in what you guys are doing here, because, as you said, they're, they're... aren't necessarily a lot of african-american male role models that are in the public that are in the public eye right um and if they are um they're either you know football uh basketball or rappers to be honest um if you think about an african-american role model for a young kid these you know in today's generation i think of millennials and younger um you know i taught high school for a few years and you know that was the typical role model for these kids athletes or music artists and unfortunately um Baseball is not, um, you know, there aren't many African-American players in baseball, um, especially in the major leagues. So that's why Tim is so um, adamant about being, you know, stepping into that role and playing that part for those kids um, who, you know, may have tried football or basketball or who haven't tried anything at all, you know, Um 
well, just baseball. Breathe it, and then you bring up a point here, and 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 you know, it. What percent of what percent ultimately makes it to a major league sport? It's uncommon. It's very uncommon. And and so, you know, how 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 you when you were teaching? I mean, how how do you tell those kids? You know, like this. You know, the chances of this. You, I mean, do your best. Absolutely, you don't want to. You don't want to dissuade anybody, but this is not necessarily going to be a way out. Yeah, so in those situations, and even now when we're mentoring these kids, we're not telling them to put your all your work in so you can be the best baseball player or football player or, you know, hockey player or whatever. We're telling them, we're really hoping that they channel that leadership element, um, that drive, that motivation to be successful in whatever they do. Maybe it's not basketball, you know, but use whatever leadership skills, whatever motivation, you know, that you're able to trigger, let that trigger your success, whatever that looks like for you. Again, it may not be the professional athlete or, you know, the music artist, but, you know, just really teaching that, you know, that, that work ethic, that leadership um, is very important. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, I think most, men and women these days, young women, you have, to have, you have daughters, um, that we have to believe in our dreams. And whatever your dream is, it can come to fruition. I mean, as Rick, you've heard me many a day when I first met you, that um, my book was actually a dream. And as I said, it's not as good as Dr. King's, but it was very good um, because I wanted to do this book. And, you know, Jerry was like, oh, okay, that's great. And Jerry Reinsdorf. Yeah, sorry, Jerry Reinsdorf. And most people are like, oh, that's nice. You want to try to write a book. So most people, again, thought, it would never get published. Well, my book did get published with Todd's as well, same publisher in Chicago. And um, I've been very fortunate about that. And that was my dream. But I was not going to let anything stop me from getting it. I never wrote a book before. I didn't have any avenues to who I was going to speak to or whatever. Yes, I speak to Rick Pearson and he's on WGN, but he's like, I don't know who you can get it published by. Oh, okay. All right. But, you know, it happened to be one of my clients. But again, that was a dream. And as, as you and Tim, Young people need to know your dreams are real, and you should of go for course. it. And you definitely- and also that yeah, that element of you know it, it's not going to be easy, right? Correct. So Ricky made the point that you know not everybody get, makes it to the professional level. You know, there's that grind, there is you know that adversity, and I think you know with that's why Tim loves being on the White Sox because he didn't you know get drafted to a team that was you know winning you know, every single game or going, you know, to the World Series. Like, you know, he he really thrived on, you know, being that underdog and, you know, just kind of putting in that work because he saw the vision, you know, and just really trying to transfer that to these young minds. Like, wow, it will, you know. It could be, it could be amazing. Yeah, and I well, and I think of Martha Joe's uh, father, who, you know, after uh, the baseball career, uh, kind of remade himself. Right, he did more after baseball than he did playing. I mean, he played for the half of his life, um, baseball and the Negro Leagues, Cuban Winter League, but he did so much more, especially in the African-American community afterwards, from doing college programs, um, paying for Greyhound Corporation, had um, different 
programs that they did for minorities to go back to school to get their college education. Um, and that was the biggest thing because, as Bree said and Tim agrees, that um, our bodies get older, even though we act like we're young. Um, and with that, you cannot be a professional <laughs> athlete for the rest of your life. So your mind is something you can definitely fall back on. Well, and that's where leadership kind of steps in. Exactly. And, and you know, yes, there's leadership on the field. There's leadership right, but there's in a leadership sport. At but there's, there's leadership at, at, at your job. There's yes. leadership in your heart. Right. And there's leadership in the community that you live in. Um, well, and, and for example, you, you didn't really say, but at, at Greyhound, your father was the first African-American vice uh, president, tr- of, uh, major transportation yes, executive in, in the country. country. Yeah. And it started out in a way is almost like the company was trying to stereotype right no they definitely were and and like as it could happen for tim later on in life my father got that position because he was with the brooklyn dodgers so he they knew that the african-american community knew who my father was because of that my father was jackie robinson's roommate so everybody and to this day should know who jackie robinson is and because of that they were like well we want to put him out there because we don't want anybody to think Greyhound is racist. Because if you remember, the Freedom Riders were on a Greyhound bus that got burned. And so my father was the face that they put there. And African-Americans were like, oh, okay. They don't dislike us. That was just that those mean people that did that to that bus. And, yeah, and, and we won't even get into the whole world of marketing no. today. Um, <laughs> Martha, yeah. Joe, Martha Joe Black, author, a daughter of Joe Black, thank you so much for joining thank me. Thank you. And Bree Anderson. Uh, Hi. So One th- more thing, Rick. I just want to make note. Tim sure. uh, just launched his YouTube channel yesterday. Okay. Um, so any YouTubers out there, be sure to check out Tim's channel, Tim Anderson 7. Think you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much, Bree. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Look forward to seeing you at the Sox Park. Thank you. Talk to you. We'll be back with more right after this. Well, that's all we have time for on this week's edition of the Sunday Spin. I want to thank my guests, Chicago City Treasurer Melissa Conyers-Irvin. She is hosting a pair of dollars and cents town halls about dealing with financial education. Uh, You can learn more at the Chicago City Treasurer's website, something I think is sorely needed these times. I also want to thank Todd Mayfield, son of music icon Curtis Mayfield, and he's the author of Traveling Soul, a biography his father. You can find that on our Chicago Tribune, I'm sorry, our Chicago WGN website. Uh, we'll have a link to that book. I also want to thank Martha Joe Black, my good friend. Uh, she is the author of Joe Black, More Than a Dodger, and uh, we'll have a link up on the website for that book as well. And calling in from spring training, Bree Anderson, wife of White Sox star shortstop Tim Anderson uh, on their Anderson League of Leaders charity. You can find more about those charities, too, on your social media. It's been a great show. It's uh, my homage to Black History Month. Uh, Now we're going to switch things over because we've got the Chicago Blackhawks coming up on the air. Chris Bowden's pregame set to start in just two seconds.